Colossians chapter 1. Lord, as we've opened up our Bibles to this book, we say thank you for the wonderful way that you've been instructing us. The wonderful way that you've been walking us through this book. And and Lord, we know it's you because Jesus, you are just so exalted in these pages. You are so exalted and shown to be preeminent and above all things. And Lord, what wonderful news we're reminded of last week that we've been delivered and transferred. Delivered from darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son. Lord, this is good stuff. And we thank you for your faithfulness, Holy Spirit, to instruct us. We ask that, Spirit, you would teach us now. As we look at just a couple verses, we ask that you would really um, supernaturally enable our minds to grasp what your word has to say. But then beyond that, for our hearts to really get into what is being said, Lord. And that we would be doers of the word. That because of what we'd be taught today, we'd go out and evangelize. We'd go out and, and lift up the truth and, and put a dent in the darkness and stand against the lies of, uh, and deception of the cult. So you would just make us radical doers of the word. We want to be about your business in these last days. And so as we take a few minutes now and study your word, Holy Spirit, come and instruct us for the glory of Jesus Christ and the furtherance of his kingdom. Amen. Amen. Listen, gang, today we come to one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. You understand and you know that the Bible from beginning to end is primarily a book about Jesus Christ. From beginning to end, the whole thing is about Jesus. The Old Testament records or records the preparation for the coming of the Lord. The Gospels present him as God in human flesh coming to the world to save sinners. The book of Acts records the initial going forth of the message of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. The epistles explain the theology of Christ's work and the workings of his church. And the book of Revelation reveals his second coming and presents him as being on the throne, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. From Genesis to Revelation, the book in front of you is about Jesus Christ. In fact, when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who were so disheartened, so disappointed, so bummed out that Jesus had died on the cross and they thought all their messianic expectations had been dashed. You remember that Jesus meets them on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection and he begins to instruct them from the Old Testament. And it says there explicitly that he showed them how they testified of him. And so Jesus himself said in Luke 24, 27, that the whole of Scripture is about him. But it could be said that of all the Bible's teachings about Jesus, none is more significant than that which is before us today. We're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. We're going to read that whole section, but really we're just going to cover verse 15 today. We're going to take a few weeks to wade through this stuff. But let's read 15 through 19. It says, speaking of Jesus... And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. 
And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Now this passage removes any doubt or confusion concerning the identity of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that there's doubt and confusion about his identity in our world today, on this coastline today, you need to start talking to some people. Start asking random people their opinions on who Jesus is. You will be flabbergasted to hear their responses. Everything from, he never existed, everybody knows that, uh, to, well, there's no Trinity, it's Jesus only, and everything in between, to he was just a good teacher, or he was a great moral man, or he was fraudulent, uh, he was a liar, he was a lunatic, to he was a prophet, but just one of many prophets. You will hear all sorts of stuff when you begin to talk to people about Jesus, and you will see that today in our world there is much confusion as to his true identity, and no scripture possibly And the whole Bible dispels that confusion as wonderfully as these few verses in front of us. They are necessary, vital, foundational to our Christian faith. Now, I want you to recall from our previous teachings the reason that this letter was written to the church in Colossae. You'll remember that it was written because there were some false ideas floating around the community about Jesus. Some heretical teachings about him and his identity, who he is and who he isn't. And these false teachings about the Lord were beginning to creep their way into the church. And so the young man that presumably um, founded the church... Uh, Epaphras made a 1,000 or more mile journey to Rome where Paul was in prison, shared with him the situation, and Paul wrote this letter in response to those false ideas. Now, the false ideas that were beginning to penetrate the church are generally referred to in commentaries and books and by scholars as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy, or the false teachings about Jesus that were beginning to affect the Colossian church. So in future teachings, if you hear me say the Colossian heresy, you'll know what we're talking about. I'll define it for you. Basically, the Colossian heresy included elements of Greek philosophical thought and legalistic Judaism. The false teaching that was beginning to infect the church in Colossae contained Greek philosophical thought and legalistic Judaism. Now concerning the influence of legalistic Judaism, we'll lay that aside for today. And when we get to chapter 2, that will become very prevalent. We'll talk about that to some degree, how it's affecting the church, how it affects Christians today, and what our view ought to be and how we ought to approach that. But right now, we want to see that Paul is dealing with a Greek philosophical influence. The Greeks loved knowledge. And the Greeks loved wisdom. In fact, they exalted knowledge and wisdom above everything else. And for a large segment of the Hellenistic population, Hellenistic, speaking of the Greeks, for a large percentage of the Greek population, the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom was above every other pursuit in life. And they prided themselves on the sophistication of their philosophical systems. Now, the main Greek philosophical system that affected Christianity became known as Gnosticism. It didn't blossom into Gnosticism until the 2nd century, a hundred years or so after this epistle was written. So we really have um, the beginnings of Gnosticism being addressed by Paul here. Gnosticism, 
Uh, gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge or to know. They were called the Gnostics, so Gnosticism. Interesting, uh, someone who is an agnostic, A, Gnostic, A, the prefix meaning no or none or not, it means they have no knowledge. Funny, right? Because you're sharing the Lord with people and they say, well, I'm an agnostic. Oh, you don't know anything. <gasps> you Christian, you're so rude. How could you say that? I didn't say that. You just said you don't know anything. By definition, an agnostic doesn't know. You have no knowledge. But the Gnostics claimed knowledge. And they claimed knowledge above and beyond normal knowledge and above and beyond the knowledge of others. They claimed to have secret knowledge. Mysterious knowledge, esoteric knowledge, and knowledge that was necessary for salvation and walking with God. You see, for them, the basic message of the cross was just too simplistic. There just wasn't enough to it for them. Paul said that in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. He says, to the Greeks, Christ crucified is foolishness. The Greeks would hear about God becoming a man being born of a virgin, dying upon the cross and atoning death for the sins of the world, rising from the dead. And they say, well, that's silly. Let me tell you some real knowledge, some mysterious things. So for them, the message of the cross was too simple and Jesus Christ was not adequate for salvation. When Greek philosophical thought began to penetrate the church, the segment of the church that was influenced by that began to think, well, yes, it's Jesus, but it's Jesus and special knowledge. Jesus is not the only way. It's Jesus and special knowledge. That's prevalent today. That's prevalent within mainline Christianity today. They would all say, oh yeah, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But gee whiz, you ought to check this out. Oh yeah, it's all about the Lord. But let me tell you about this experience. Oh yeah, it's all the Lord. But what about these visions? What about this teaching? Oh, let me show you the deeper things. We're going to see today in the Bible that Paul says there is nothing deeper than Jesus Christ. That he is the deepest thing. But to the Greek philosophers um, penetrating the church, it was inadequate in their mind. There were those among the Greeks who claimed to have visions that gave them special knowledge. And so Paul would say such things as he says in Colossians chapter 2. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf that you may be attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. Paul would say to the Greek, to those who are seeking knowledge beyond Jesus Christ, he would say, hey man, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Jesus Christ. All the mysteries of God are revealed in Jesus Christ. He is the beginning. He is the end. We are complete in Him, the book of Colossians says. It's all about Jesus. You don't need to look any further. Isn't that good news? He would say in Colossians two eighteen and 19, Let no one keep defrauding you, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding to the head. And so there were those who said, well, I saw this vision, and it means thus and so, and it caused them to sort of let the head, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, go, and to begin to look for other things in addition to. Anytime someone claims revelation or vision that does not exalt Jesus Christ to the highest place, it's not from the Lord. 
It's not from the Holy Spirit. Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit, He will testify of me and He will exalt me. It's all about Jesus. And so Paul is warning the church in Colossae against the seduction of false philosophy and the claims of men. He is reminding them, as we need to be reminded, of the sufficiency of Christ. That for every need we have in life, everything we need to know, do, and experience, Jesus Christ is sufficient. And he will remind them in our text today of the deity of Jesus Christ. You see, the conclusion that the Greek philosophers that were influencing the church came to was that Jesus could not be God. They came to the conclusion that there was no way that Jesus could be God. Here's how it happened. They were pondering the philosophical question, why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? They were wondering, why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? And as they speculated and thought about it, they came to two false conclusions. The first conclusion they came to is, well, all matter is evil. Everything that is physical they drew quite a, they made quite a dichotomy between the spiritual realm and the physical. There is, but they maybe over-exaggerated it and said everything physical, everything made of matter is evil, inherently evil. Everything that's physical. And then the second conclusion they came to is that a holy God then could not come into contact with evil matter. A holy God could never come into contact with evil matter. Those are false ideas. The Bible doesn't teach that everything physical is evil. It doesn't teach that. Many physical things are simply morally neutral. By the way, we're able to become new creations in that old man in the wicked ways crucified with Christ. And the Bible doesn't teach that it's impossible for God to come in contact with wicked creation. God simply says, I will not allow wickedness into my kingdom. And he chooses not to be in the midst of it. It's not as though he is limited by something. So having these false ideas then, they came up with the idea that there were a series of emanations that came from God. An emanation is something that is emitted from something. A series of emanations that came from God. They were basically good emanations and bad emanations. The good emanations were like angelic beings. The bad emanations were demons and such. And each emanation had deity in it, had God's holiness in it. But the more the emanations went further from God, the less holiness there was. And finally, there was one emanation so far from God that he created this world and all the matter in the world, which is evil. And we know that's not a biblical teaching. And they would say, not only are there a series of emanations from God, therefore a holy God not creating this world, but one of his emanations creating this evil world. Not only did they say that, but then they said that Jesus Christ is merely one of those emanations. That he is on par with and not above angelic beings. He's an important emanation, but just one of those emanations. They didn't deny Jesus Christ, but they sought to dethrone Jesus Christ. Be very careful. It's the same deception in the cults and in false religions and ideologies today. They won't outright deny Jesus Christ all the time, but they certainly dethrone him. That is true in Buddhism. That is true in Islam. That is true in the New Age movement. That is true in Mormonism. That is true in, uh, with the Jehovah's Witnesses. 
Not denying, but dethroning, and therefore by dethroning, redefining who Jesus is. And so in our text, Paul seeks to combat these things by asserting the absolute supremacy and deity of Jesus Christ. And over the next few weeks, we'll see that he does that by drawing four comparisons. In verse 15, he will compare Jesus to God. See how that works out in just a moment here. In verses 15 and 16, he compares Jesus to the universe or creation. In verse 16, he compares Jesus to the unseen world. And in verse 18, to the church. And what he will demonstrate is that Jesus is preeminent in all of those things. He is supreme. He is over all those things. Now, we're just going to cover verse 15. We'll have to dip into verses 16 and 17 to explain a bit of verse 15. But what I want you to go away with today is just grasping two things out of verse 15, okay? Just two things. Let's read it. It says, And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. First thing that I want to grasp on is that word image. Image. In the Greek, it's icon. Icon. And it basically carries the idea of likeness or image. Hence, it's translated image. Image, icon in the Greek, means likeness. Um, We get our English word icon from it, which generally means a statue, right? And so it says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. God being spirit. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, some of you are listening and you're saying, well, wait a minute. The Bible also says that we're made in the image of God. So how does that exalt Jesus Christ? That seems to be no big deal. Jesus is the image, but we are created in the image of God. Listen, there's a difference. The same Greek word is used concerning us, that we are the icon of God, the image of God. But listen, man is not the perfect image of God or the complete image of God. Here's what it means that we are created in the image of God. It means that we, like God, possess intellect, emotion, and will. We possess intellect, emotion, and will. And because of that, we're able to think, feel, and choose like God. In that way, we are created in the image of God. But we're not the perfect image of God because we humans are not holy. We are sinful, therefore, we are not created in the moral image of God, understand. When the Bible speaks about God's holiness, it speaks of his moral purity, his absolute moral purity. We are not created in the moral image of God, because we're sinful, and he is absolutely holy. Not even Adam and Eve were created in the moral image of God, because they sinned, didn't they? There you go. Beyond that, nor are we created in his image essentially or in the essence of who we are. We are not created in his image essentially. In other words, we don't possess divine attributes. When the Bible talks about God, we begin to learn that he is omniscient, meaning he knows all things. God in the Bible is presented as being omnipotent meaning he is all-powerful, omnipotent, all-powerful. The Bible speaks about his immutability, his immutability, that he is unchanging, that he never changes. And the Bible speaks about his omnipresence, 
that he is all present. Those are divine attributes that we, quite frankly, do not have. That's why it's so silly when you talk to people sharing the Lord with them or just getting to know them who are in the New Age movement and they say, well, I'm God. You begin to discuss with them, well, what are your thoughts about God and who do you believe God is? I'm God. Listen, if you're God, I am so disappointed. I want a God who is omnipresent. I want a God who's omnipotent. I want a God who's omniscient. I want a God who's immutable, meaning he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, meaning he is faithful. You change according to what you ate today. If you are God, I am so bummed out. We do not possess the attributes of divinity. So we are not created in God's essential image nor are we created in his moral image. We are not the perfect image of God, but Jesus. The New Testament ascribes to Jesus every attribute of deity ascribed to God in the Old Testament. It speaks of his omnipresence. speaks of him being omnipotent, omniscient, his his, uh, unchangeableness in Hebrews chapter 13. All those things are assigned to Jesus in the New Testament. So Jesus, as compared to man, is the absolute accurate image of God. Here's what it comes down to. It says it beautifully. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, you could read it later. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says concerning Jesus that he is the image of God. The Bible says concerning us that we were made in the image of God, but Jesus is the image of God. You see the difference there? Jesus is the exact likeness, the perfect represent, representation of God. In fact, he said in John chapter 14, verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. The disciples, having been with him for about three years at that time, said, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough, enough for us. We want to see the God of Israel. We want to see Adonai. Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says in the book of John, I and the Father are one, meaning one essence, a unity, one being. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we have it on the PowerPoint, is sort of a parallel to our text today, speaking of the divinity of Jesus Christ, one of the foundational texts on the subject. It says concerning Jesus in Hebrews 1, 3, He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His nature. The exact representation, meaning He is not a lesser emanation. He is the exact representation. That word in the Greek referring to uh, an engraving or a stamp. Jesus is the perfect likeness of God. Philippians 2.6 says he is in the very form of God. And in John chapter 1 verse 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Son of God. He is God in the flesh. That is the declaration of the Word of God from beginning to end. Old Testament, New Testament, and Jesus claimed the same thing. He claimed that He is God. And so, when you look at that word image, 
I want you to grasp now what that means. I want you to have a, a handle on it because listen, when we're faithful to learn things concerning the Word of God and the things of God, God is always faithful to give us an opportunity to use them. That's wonderful. That is so good. When we are faithful to learn what God wants to teach us, to get a grasp on doc- doctrine and what the Bible has to say, when we, when we get ownership on that, the Lord is always faithful to give us an opportunity to use that, right? Because you're His vessel. You're His tool. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. That language that you should walk in them, meaning some won't. But God has already prepared good works for you. And so if you are faithful to learn what he wants to teach you, he'll give you an opportunity. So I would suggest that some of you are going to come across people that have a a, a stumbling block in their lives concerning the deity of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they grew up as Jehovah's Witnesses. And you know them. And, and they're longing spiritually because the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses will never satisfy them spiritually. So they are longing spiritually. And listen to me. You are the beggar that has found bread. You are the beggar that has found bread. You have the answer to the inner longing. You have that peace and that joy and that hope. And it is found in Jesus in his true identity. But this poor soul over here that has not been redeemed, who is hungering and thirsting for God, has a stumbling block that has been placed in their life through a lie, which is Jesus is not God. He is not the only unique Savior of the world. And you, by grasping the word of God, can, with reasoning, by sharing the word, remove that stumbling block that now their heart is open to the working of the Holy Spirit who wants to save them. See how important it is to pay attention in church? So there's the word image. The next thing that I want you to walk away with is the last phrase of verse 15. Concerning Jesus, that he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. In the third century... In Alexandria, Egypt, there developed a heretical idea that Jesus was not divine, that he was not deity, that he was not God. And it really began to get a hold in the church in the third century coming from Alexandria. And those in Alexandria that denied the deity of Jesus Christ used this passage to their defense. They said, look at, first, or look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says there that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. And so they argue that Jesus is then created. It's the same thing today with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's the exact same argument. This is one of their uh, primary texts that they'll take you to. Is they'll say, look, Jesus is created. He is the firstborn. God made him. He is not God. He is a God. That's what they teach. He's a God. They even teach he is a mighty God. But he's not God, they say. So what does this mean, that he's the firstborn? Well, first of all, it's always important to study um, uh, Scripture in context. And so if you read a verse and you're like, I'm not sure what that means, keep reading and sometimes there will come some clarity. Verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, 
all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, if you had read verse 15 and you begin to think he's the firstborn of all creation, he must have been created, then you have a problem, don't you, when you get to verse 16 and it says he is the creator of all things. That all things were created by him and for him, that he's before all things and he holds everything together. There can't be anything apart from Jesus Christ, according to verses 16 and 17. And so I'll tell you what the Jehovah's Witnesses did. They went ahead and made their own translation of the Bible in 1961 called the New World Translation. And in that, they changed the wording. I have an excerpt for you. It's up here on the PowerPoint. Here is their rendering of uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 17. They insert the word other four times. Look what they say. Because by means of him, that is Jesus, all other things were in the heavens and upon the earth. The things visible and the things invisible, no matter whether they are thrones or lordship or governments or authorities. All other things have been created through him and for him. Also, he is before all other things, and by means of him all other things were made to exist. They have outright changed the Bible and the meaning thereof. They have added to the scriptures, thereby changing the identity of Jesus. Not denying him, but subtly dethroning him. He is a God, but not the God. But my friends, the Bible that you have before you clearly says that he is the creator, the sustainer, and the goal. That he made all things, he keeps all things together, and they all exist for him. And so if it says that he is the creator of all things, then what does it mean when it says in verse 15 that he's the firstborn of all creation? What does that mean? Well, the Holy Spirit, who is the author of Scripture, chooses his words very carefully. And when he came here, uh, you know, whatever, when the Holy Spirit was writing it through Paul, he chose the word firstborn. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in the Greek because I don't really know how to pronounce Greek. But, by the way, every Greek word I've pronounced for the last few weeks, I've mispronounced, just so you know, okay? So don't quote me on these things. Um, Firstborn is that Greek word right there. You pronounce it to yourself later. There is another word which means first created in the Greek language, and it's that word right there. Two different words, proto meaning first and then the rest of the word. So the Holy Spirit chose the word that means firstborn. He did not choose the word that means first created. If the Bible wanted to say that Jesus was created, then it would be that word in the Greek text. It is not that word. It is the word for firstborn. Why did the Holy Spirit use the phraseology firstborn? Well, in biblical times, in both Jewish and Greek culture, the word firstborn means first in rank. First in rank, it is, uh, means preeminence. It is the firstborn son that had the right to the inheritance, but he was not necessarily the first one born. You're saying, Britt, that sounds a little fishy. Well, let's look at examples from the Bible. In Psalm 89, verse 27, King David is called the firstborn there. If you know your Bible, you know that King David was the last born to his father, Jesse. 
He was the youngest of all of his brothers. And yet in Psalm 89, verse 27, it says that King David is the firstborn and then the Lord crowns him as king. So we see there that it has the idea of uh, first in rank, preeminent. He was the youngest brother but called the firstborn because he was crowned king. We see it further with regards to Israel. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and in Jeremiah 31, verse 9, Israel is called the firstborn of God. They were not the first nation ever born. They were not the first people ever made. Simply what is communicated is that they hold first place in God's sight and plan among the nations. They were not the first people to exist, but they are called more than once in the Bible, the firstborn of God. Now in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. In Revelation 1, 5, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. He was not the first one in the Bible to be resurrected from the dead. We have people in the Old Testament who were resurrected, and we have people in the New Testament that were resurrected before him. And yet he is called the firstborn of the dead, meaning he has rank above and beyond them all. He is preeminent. He is firstborn in rank among everyone who has ever been resurrected. Obviously, no duh. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn among the church. You and I, among the brethren, the firstborn among the brethren. Obviously meaning that he is the head. So, It's very clear now, isn't it? That when this verse says firstborn, it's speaking of the preeminence of Jesus Christ. And and see how that's so clear to you and I at this moment because of the rest of the Bible. You see how when you read the Bible in context, in light of what the rest of Scripture says, letting Scripture clarify Scripture, Scripture comment on Scripture, it just becomes very clear. We're all sitting here going, yeah, there's no doubt. Firstborn in in biblical phraseology means first in rank, preeminent. And if the Bible had wanted to say that he was first created, it would have chosen another Greek word. We're all very clear on this now. This is wonderful, but listen. There are people who are your neighbors and your friends and your family who are not clear on the identity of Jesus Christ. And so it has been for 1,700 years or more. And the end of that is destruction. We're going to end right here. I'm not going to go any further in the text because I I just want you to grasp those two things. I just want you to get a handle on verse 15. But I, I want to place on you now a wonderful thing. It says in 1 John that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. One of the commandments of the Lord is go into all the earth and make disciples of all the nations teaching them all that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The name, singular, because they're one essence, the Trinity. You know how now have knowledge. With knowledge comes responsibility. We've just flicked the end of an iceberg on things such as this. You can begin to dig in and learn more. These are called apologetics, defending the faith. We've got books back at the book table. Listen, begin to learn to defend the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Your faith will be bolstered, you will be blessed, and you will lead people to the kingdom. You'll be able to partner with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit deals in truth. 
And Jesus said concerning the Holy Spirit that he would bring to remembrance all that Jesus said. So to bring it to remembrance, you've got to put it in here first. You've got to be in the Word of God. People ask me all the time, hey, where did you go to Bible college or seminary? I never went to Bible college or seminary. I went to UCSB and was studying business and, and uh, communication. But that was my Bible college. You know why? When I got to UCSB, I was pretty much a nominal Christian. This wasn't too long ago, just a few years ago. And, uh, you know, I had read the Bible a bit, been to a few Bible studies, went to church occasionally. But, but I knew in my heart that I believed that Jesus was God and that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose from the dead physically and that he was my Savior and he was the only way to salvation. I knew these things in my heart. But when I got to school, I would sit in class and the class would have nothing to do with religion. And the teacher would begin to say, well, you can't believe Christianity and you can't believe the Bible. And those people that preach Jesus. And in my classes, it had nothing to do with Christianity. They would speak against the validity of the Bible and the identity of Jesus Christ. And then out of curiosity, I took some um, courses from the religious studies department. And it only got worse from there. Everywhere I turned, denying the inerrancy of Scripture and the deity and supremacy and preeminence of Jesus Christ everywhere I turned. And I had a problem. Because I believed something, but I didn't know why I believed it. And I wasn't able to defend it. That's a problem. And I didn't have a mentor at the time. I wasn't connected to a church. I just began to read the Bible. I just began to read it. Every bit that I could get of it, just read it and soak it in and soak it in and soak it in. And the Holy Spirit began to instruct as He will you. It says in 1 John that the Holy Spirit is able to instruct you directly. But don't be found in that problem of I know what I believe, but I don't know why, and I couldn't explain it really very well, and I certainly couldn't defend it. Not a good place to be. If you're just a Christian, you just got saved, that's okay. But if you've been a Christian for very long, and you can't defend the faith, shame on you. Know what you believe and why you believe it. Just read your Bible. All the answers are there. They're all right there. That's all you need. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time in your word. Thank you for those couple of little things you taught us. And Lord, we just ask now that you would really minister them to our hearts, that you would seal them in there. Um, anywhere that I have not explained well, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are the teacher of all things. So you can go ahead and clean that up for me, Lord. And I just pray that you would make us doers of the word. That you would put that wonderful beautiful burden on us of being salt and light of representing you standing up for righteousness and truth in a wicked and perverse generation in the midst of last day's deception that we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt what is true and why we know it Lord do that in this church do that in us as individuals ask it in Jesus name Amen